Well, it is good to be back. And uh, thank you. As uh, I didn't miss not teaching since I got to, I get to teach every day. I'm in Canada, so I actually get to teach. Um, What's that? Five days, six days? Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Six days. So that was actually and uh, a lot of fun. Unless you're there and you have to listen to me for 45 minutes to an hour, then <laughs> hour and a half, two hours. Come on, Curtis, be nice. That's right. It, we're, we're free. We're free in Canada. There is no time limits. Uh, they have the food on the boat. They can open it up. They can eat it. I said, just, just enjoy the time. Have a nap. Doesn't matter. I'm preaching. Anyways, <laughs> you can fish off the side of the boat. <laughs> I'm free. Anyways, we have been, over this past year, looking at focusing on the Christ. And um, considering in the, the first so many months, the shadow of Christ, looking at Christ from the Old Testament and the fact that it shouldn't have come as a surprise to those in Christ's day that he was going to come and what he was going to be like, and yet it did take him by surprise. Um, and then a few weeks ago, probably about a month and a half ago now, we began transitioning to the life of Christ. Focusing on the life of Christ, and then looking at that, we've considered his birth, his youth, and then his ministry. And I said um, three weeks ago when we began looking at his ministry that we were going to be looking at seven di- different sections, his preparation, proclamation, his power, his parables, his passion, his pattern, and his promises, all of his ministry. And so then we looked at his preparation for ministry three weeks ago. And in that, looking at the preparation of his ministry, we considered his, um, his baptism, and we considered his temptation, the baptism of Christ and the temptation of Christ, and the importance that those were in his preparation for ministry. And uh, we considered very quickly going through baptism, the, the mode of baptism and, and such. Um, but the, the importance it was as well as proclaiming Christ as being sinless, that his deity was a part of that, that baptismal process. And then the temptation, the, the fact that he revealed himself to us as well, that we know from the book of Hebrews that, um, that Christ was tempted in every way such as we are, yet he was without sin. And so when Christ was tempted in the wilderness, we saw from 1 John 2 that there were three major categories of sin, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And I kind of took them out of order when we looked at Christ um, of his temptation, looking at it from the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. But really, he was tempted in the lust of the flesh, then the pride of life, and then the lust of the eyes. Um, But all three of those categories was what Satan brought at him. You know, first he was told to turn around and and make the the stone into bread. And it had been okay for him to do that, except for the fact that Satan told him to do it. And so then he had been heeding the word of Satan rather than the word of God. And so then it would become sin. He was then tested with the the lust of the the pride of life when he was taken to the pinnacle and says says in the word that if um, if you are God, then if you were the son of God, then, you know, you won't even be able to dash your feet. And so go ahead, throw yourself down. And, you know, then I'll believe. I'll, I'll believe that who you are. Well, that was pride, you know. Show me your, your prowess. Show me who you really are, big guy. And uh, Jesus didn't give him to that one either. He said, Thou shalt not, it says in the word of God, you shall not tempt the, the, the Lord your God. And then finally, he was tempted with the lust of the, the eyes where Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world. In one moment, it says, I'm going to give you all these things if you would just bow down and worship me. And Jesus again turns to him with the word and says that you should worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. And so, for every one of those temptations that were brought to him, Jesus responded with, with the Word of God. And we saw then the, um, how to overcome temptation was through prayer and through the, spending time in God's Word. So, spending time in God's presence and spending time in His Word is the, is the key to the victory 
of, of, of temptations, of overcoming those temptations in life. Today we want to slide over, um, continuing in, in the book of Matthew. We looked at Matthew 3 and 4 um, in that, but we want to continue on in looking at his proclamation, the proclamation of Christ's ministry, if you would. And we see that in Matthew 4, verse 17, but we'll keep it in context, okay, beginning at verse 12, since we read all the way to verse 11 um, the last time, considering the temptation of Christ. So for context, I'm going to begin reading in verse 12, and I'll read down to verse 17 where we see it. It says, Matthew says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he departed from Galilee, or departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, Caruso, to proclaim, and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So we want to look at the proclamation of Christ. The proclamation of Christ consisted of two main parts. First of all, there was the imminency of the kingdom. And secondly, there was the preeminency of repentance. Jesus' message summed up is what? Repent. Why? The kingdom of God's here. The kingdom of God is at hand. So I want to look at those two places. We're going to look at the imminency of the kingdom and then the preeminency. Now, the first thing we, want, we should think about when we're talking about the imminency of the kingdom, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, we ought to ask, what kingdom? There are a lot of interpretations. There are a lot of understanding what the kingdom of God is. There's actually classes that are devoted to that in Bible college and in seminary. You know, what's the kingdom of heaven? What's the kingdom of God? It's not that hard to unlock if you just what? Read the Word of God. Okay? If you read the Word of God, sometimes you know, we don't want to do that. We don't want to take the time to read the entirety of God's Word to find an answer. We want to find cliff notes. We want to, you know, which, uh, the, what are biblical cliff notes? Those, that's that center column with all the references that are in there. You know? Because what do you do? Come on, let's be honest. What do you do? You go to the references that the, whoever put this Bible together put out there. And you're assuming that what? You got it all. Well, not just that they're right, but you got it all. You don't have it all. You have just the one or two that they chose to put in there. Okay? I challenge you, do your own center columns. Okay? That as you read the Word of God, and as God shows you, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things, that this verse relates to that verse, go back and do what? Write that verse next to it. Okay? If you go through mine, many times you're going to find different notes in different places where I have verses just listed that aren't there, because those are the ones that I felt were very important to tie to one another. Okay? And so, what kingdom? Well... There are, in identifying the kingdom, there are two primary kingdoms that Jesus is talking about here. Okay? There is the Davidic kingdom, the Davidic kingdom that um, we know about from the Old Covenant, which we, have, we looked at actually months ago um, as we were looking at the shadow of Christ. And so, first of all, we want to look at, in that, that kingdom of David, the God's confirmation of the kingdom, which we saw. And I'm going to have a lot of verses up here this week because there are a lot of stuff we're going to look at. Um, there will be some we turn to, but there's a lot of verses. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, again, we looked at this when we saw the covenant to David, okay? Um, and how that was a symbol of, of looking toward Jesus, a shadow of Christ. It says, when your days are fulfilled and when you rest with your fathers, this is Yahweh speaking to, Jesus, or to, to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom 
forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blood of the sons of men. But my chesed, my mercy, shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Do you note a continual theme going on through there? It's forever, forever, forever. Do you note that? That three times God says, I'm going to establish your house and your kingdom and your throne forever. Well, many years later, after um, the, the separation of Israel and Judah, and Israel now is, being, is destroyed by Assyria, Judah is now captured by Babylon, so, so really the, the kingdom of David, if you would, is what? Is broken. From all intents and purposes, if you are looking at things purely physically, and you are on the earth, you would say what? God did what? God lied. Or he wasn't able to keep his promise. But look at what he says through Jeremiah in chapter 33. This is right after, and in the midst of, the establishment of a new covenant. That God says he was going to establish this new covenant in the days ahead. Okay? So so don't put this aside, because there's a lot of... uh, in Christendom today, many churches have gotten rid of Israel, and they think the church is Israel. And they take all the promises that God made to Israel, and they give them to the church. And that is not true. Look what God says. Thus says Yahweh, If you can break my covenant with a day, and my covenant with a night, so there will not be a day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant. Do you get it? In order for the covenant that God made with David to be broken... Now, this is hundreds of years later. In order for the covenant that God made with David to be broken, what would have to happen? The earth would have to be destroyed. The sun would have to be destroyed. That's the only way you're going to get rid of the covenant with the day, is to get rid of the night. Get rid of the day four, remember? On day four, God made the, the, greater, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. Okay? You'd have to destroy his creation in order for this to happen. So what happens if you destroy the sun and the moon? The earth is gone, as well as all the people. And so, therefore, you can destroy what? The covenant of David. So, there you go. The atheists have their, have their plan. All they have to do is what? Blow up the sun. You blow up the sun, you destroy God's plan, it's not, not a problem. Okay? And he goes on, he says, My broken with, my, with David, my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. Okay? Now, I want to move on. Again, a whole lot of stuff, but there's so much that we can talk about. But God's confirmation of that physical kingdom of David, okay? The Davidic kingdom. Well, Christ declared this kingdom as well in Matthew 16, verse 28, when he said, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his, his kingdom. Now, we understand, and we'll talk about this in a moment, um, that there is what is referred to as the millennial kingdom. Okay? That is the kingdom of David. If you, and I don't have time to go into all that. Okay? Um, you can go on the web. All the messages from the book of Revelation are still up there. Okay? And you can go to, to chapter 19 and 20 and you can listen to the, the messages on, on the millennial kingdom. But the day is going to come, okay, in, in, in coming up, when there is going to be the rapture or the harpazo of the church, where the church is going to be gathered up, caught up in the clouds to meet Jesus. Immediately... That's at the, the, I believe, Revelation chapter 10, when the seventh um, trumpet is about to sound. Revelation chapter 11 will will begin. That kind of makes sense. Revelation 10, Revelation 11. In the beginning of Revelation 11, you have the the two two witnesses that are going to be on the earth for three and a half years. That's the first part of the the final week of Daniel's vision from Daniel chapter 9. Okay? 
And so I hope if you're not following with me, you go out and check all biblical prophecy out. Very important, okay? And so there's one final week of Daniel's vision of Daniel 9 still to happen, okay? That week, we're told, is for your holy people, your holy city, your holy hill. It's for the Jews. It's for Israel. It's not for us, the church, okay? God says in Revelation 10, the, the, the mystery of God would be complete, okay? And then all of a sudden, he begins to work with Israel one more time in Revelation 11. And the first thing he does for three and a half years, he sends the two witnesses on the earth. They're not able to be killed. They're not able to be able to slain. They're not able to be touched. Fire is going to come out of their mouth. They're going to consume anybody who tries to destroy them. But at the end of three and a half years, God's going to allow them to be killed. And for three and a half days, they're going to be laid out. All the world, all the world will see them, and all the world will be rejoicing. The Internet at its finest, okay? You've got webcams everywhere. Dead bodies of prophets are going to be in a webcam. You can go on the Internet anytime you want to see it. Hopefully you won't be here. I won't be here. Um, but hopefully you won't be here either, okay? But if you're here, shame on you. But if you're here... Um, you'll be able to go on the internet and check out these two dead prophets. Hopefully at that point you'll be mourning, okay? And not rejoicing. If you are, then you're part of the beast. At the end of three and a half days, what will happen? God has got, breathed life into them again. They're going to they're be resurrected from the dead. People are going to be, ah! and they're going to be caught up in the clouds. And everybody's going to see them ascend, just like Christ was ascended. The world will not have any excuse. At the end of that, then there will be the final three and a half years of the, what we refer to as the tribulation period. But the reality is it's the final week of Daniel. Is really how you should, that's how you should really refer to it. Get rid of the, the terms tribulation week and that kind of stuff. That really confuses the issue. It's the final week of Daniel's vision. That's what it is. The Bible never refers to that as a tribulation week. Okay? There's going to be a time of tribulation on the earth. That's the whole book of, of Revelation from Revelation 6 on. It's all tribulation. I believe I'm going to go through part of it. But I'm not going to go through the final week of Daniel's vision. Okay? That's for Israel. That's the seven years that many people refer to as the tribulation period. The problem is that if you really read the book of Revelation, the tribulation period ex- extends before those seven years for a long time. Okay? And so then you have the final part of the seven years that's going to come. And at the end of the seven years, what's going to happen? Anybody know? What happens at the end of the seven years? You get the battle of... Armegiddo, okay? The battle of, of the, the Valley of Jezreel, the, the, the mountain of Megiddo. They're, they're going to come, and they're, they're, all the world's going to come against, and Christ is going to come down. He's going to slain him with his mouth, okay? And then he's going to do what? He's going to establish his kingdom. And that's the millennial kingdom. It's a thousand years. And three times within the couple verses there in Revelation, it says it's going to be for a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. And there are people who say they don't believe in a thousand years. I think, do you read the Bible literally? Some are at least honest and say what? No, I don't read it literally. I take it what? Spiritually. I take it figuratively. I do it as an allegory. Well, you know, when, when God says something, we're going to see this in a moment with some other passages. When God says something very over and over and over again, I take it pretty literally. Okay? And I think it does as well to take things literally rather than just assuming that God didn't mean what he said. Okay? But Christ is going to come, and he's going to reign a thousand years. And so Christ says he believes in a Davidic kingdom as well because he's going to come, and, and everybody's going to see him. Then you see the disciples' expectation of this Davidic kingdom that's going to happen. In Acts 1, where we read the former account I made, this is Luke writing, he says, The former account I made of Theophilus of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, we'll see that commandment in just a moment, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized, baptizo, immersed with water, but you shall be immersed with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What do you think the disciples of Jesus Christ were looking for? They were looking for the physical reign. They thought, now's the time. We thought it was going to be while he was on the earth the first time there. We thought that when he was going to Jerusalem and, and there was the, you know, the, the donkey, come, you know, the, the, the fool coming in, that we thought maybe this is it. You know? the, the king is coming. He's coming into the... But it didn't happen that way. And they were all dismayed, you remember? They all fled in the garden. They, they thought, what's going on? The whole thing's been a, sh- been a, been a charade. It's, it's been a sham, you know? The king that we thought was going to be the king, now he's being what? He's being crucified. But three days later, what happened? He rose from the dead. And do you remember, it was the Marys that saw him. The Marys came, and then Peter and John went, right? But they were still what? Dismayed. It wasn't until Jesus appeared to them in the upper room that they got it. But Thomas, who wasn't there, even though everybody else is saying, hey, we saw him, we saw him, he's alive. Thomas said what? I don't think so. (laughs) You guys are just under a a great delusion. You know, you want to see him. You want all this this thing to be. Have you ever heard that from other people? You know, about your own faith? You you don't get it. You just want this. Okay, that's fine. You know, And, and so Thomas is there the next Sunday night, right? And what happens? Jesus comes back, and he appears to him, and he says, here's my hands, here's my side, go ahead, you know. And so they think, though, now they're at this point, 40 days later, when Jesus comes back, they see him again, they think, is this the time? Is this the day? Are you going to restore it now? And Jesus says what? It's not up there. It's not for you to know. Isn't that awful? It's not for you to know. Keep that in your mindset. We'll, we'll come back to that part later, okay? It's not for you to know. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. You just do what? What you're commanded to do. You do what you're commanded to do, okay? Leave, leave the kingdom work to me, you know, <laughs> establishing the kingdom. You just do what you're supposed to do. Well, that was the Davidic kingdom. But even more so, there is this theocratic kingdom that we're going to see here as well. Now, what's a theocracy? Anybody know what a theocracy is? It's one that is ruled by God. Okay? There is no theocracy on the earth right now. However, Israel was supposed to have a theocracy. We see that, first of all, physically, the physical aspect of this theocratic kingdom, which was in the past in Israel. Okay? And we see this primarily from 1 Samuel 8, when Israel comes to Samuel, they're looking for a king. Note what Yahweh says in the midst of this. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Shemuel at Ramah, and he said to them, and he said to him, look, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Isn't that a shame? I mean, I'm sorry, this is a little aside here. But look at the effect because Samuel, who saw the sons of Eli, who were not following after the, the footsteps of Eli, and he understood the judgment of God upon Eli for that, did not take that and say, I need to be careful about my own sons. And so they come to him and he says, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge over us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge over us. So Samuel prayed to Yahweh, and Yahweh said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Israel already had a king. Who was their king? God. Yahweh was the king. But we continually take our eyes off of God and we place them on men. 
All the world right now is looking for a physical Messiah. All the world except for true believers. True believers understand that Jesus Christ is going to come next time where? In the clouds. He's not going to come on the earth. Islam is looking for the next Imam. They're looking for the Messiah. Um, Hindus, Hindus, Buddhists, who's the ones with the Dalai Lama and stuff like that? Anyways, they're looking for the next leader to come. Jews are looking for Messiah. And as we saw with the disciples, what kind of Messiah are they looking for? A physical Messiah. Do you understand it? The world is looking for a physical leader to come and to bring world peace. Does that sound familiar? What is the world outside of religion looking for? A world leader to come and bring world peace. We know that Jesus is going to come and he's going to set up his millennium and he's going to set up what? Peace. Satan is called the Antichrist. Does anybody know what Antichrist means? In place of Christ. That's exactly right. In place of Christ. It doesn't mean against Christ. It means that by default, because if you want to come in places, you want to usurp somebody and come in place of them, then you clearly must be opposed to them. Do you get it? But anti in the Greek literally means to be in place of. And so everything that God has, wants to establish, Satan wants to establish. Satan says, I would be like the Most High God. Get it? So, Jesus is going to be setting up his millennium. What do you expect that Satan wants to set up right now? He wants to beat him to the punch. He wants to set up the millennium now. And who will be the king of that millennium? He will. Satan will. Do you get it? Okay. That's why you'll have the Antichrist being in charge of all that. Okay. So God says, listen, Samuel, don't worry about it. They didn't reject you. They rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Well, what's the spiritual aspect of this theocratic kingdom? Again, I wish I had more time to just develop this. Maybe we'll come back in one of these years and just develop this theme for, for a couple months. Well, that's in the present and in our hearts. Jesus, um, Jesus talks about the, um, that the, the kingdom of God is, is not by sight, but what's in the, in the hearts. And you can see that, um, we'll see that in matter, Luke 17 in a moment. But in Acts 8, verses 4 to 5 and verse 12, we read, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now understand, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Hmm. They preached the word. They preached Christ. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were what? Baptized. So when the disciples went out and began preaching, they began preaching the word. Well, what sums up the word? Jesus Christ. Well, what sums up the teachings of Jesus Christ? The kingdom of God. So what did the disciples go out preaching? The kingdom of God, which was when Christ Jesus literally placed in the word of God. Okay? Now, Luke 17, turn there with me, okay? And let's see what Jesus then refers to then in this, referring to the kingdom. Luke 17, verse 20. Luke 17, verse 20, Jesus is, is asked by the Pharisees, says, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he that is Jesus answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here, see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. It is a spiritual kingdom. There will be one day, as we saw, that Davidic kingdom that will be established, that David will, um, that 
Jesus coming as David will reign for a thousand years. But the, the, the kingdom of God is already reigning. Okay, we'll talk about that in a moment with, at, at hand. Turn to Romans 14. Romans 14. This is in the context of, of not judging um, one another, but allowing um, our master, Jesus, to, to judge each one of us. And in verse 16 says, Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What's he saying? It's not physical. You're looking at physical. You continue to look physical. Get out of the physical and, and look what? Spiritual. We saw that God is a spirit. A few weeks ago we were looking at this. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him what? In spirit and in truth. Okay. Now that's actually with the, uh, the Wednesday night crowd. We were looking at that with the, the young kids, um, talking about truth and how God wants to be worshipped in the spirit. It's not a physical thing. We continue to look at physical, but God's looking at the heart. Colossians 1. Turn to Colossians 1. Paul talking to the, the believers of Colossae, talking about the, the salvation that he's been given, um, that they've been given in chapter 1, verse 13. It says that Jesus, he, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Now, if the kingdom was merely only the millennial kingdom in the physical kingdom, then we would be what? We would still be anticipating it. But what we're told is that once you're saved... You're transported out of the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom, into the kingdom of light, if you would, and that is God's kingdom. And you can look at chapter 4, verse 11 later. It says pretty much the same thing. What's the point? The point is that there is this spiritual kingdom now that reigns in our heart. But there is then a third part, and it is the eternal aspect of the theocratic kingdom, God's kingdom, which will be in the future in heaven. In Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8, turn with me there. Okay, That wouldn't all fit on the screen, so we have to turn there. A lot of reading from the book of Revelation today. Revelation 1, 21, beginning of verse 1, says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there were no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There will be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. Now, I don't read kingdom in there anywhere at all, do you? 
But what I see is that the first heaven and the first earth is going to pass away. The second one's going to come, right? And in that city, there's a listing of people who will not be allowed to be there. Turn with me now. Or, well, you don't need to turn. I'll bring it up for you. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Paul writing to the, the believers of Corinth. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived... Nor for, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This whole crowd is not going to be allowed in the kingdom of God. But Paul says... Such were some of you. But when you turned from your sin to Jesus, what did he do for you? He washed you and he justified you. And so we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that he who knew no sin became sin for you that you might take upon yourself, take upon, that he might put upon you his righteousness. Now when God looks at you. He doesn't look at you through that list of what you were. He looks at you through the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 says, As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have been born the image of the man of dust, so also we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. There is coming a day, and I yearn for this day, when this corruptible will put on incorruption, this mortal will put on immortality. I yearn for the day when this body of death is done away with, and the body of life is placed on me. In 1 John 3, we memorized this a few months ago as we've been going through 1 John. It says, and in that day we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And those who have this hope do what? They purify themselves. It doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. It means it's going to be the hunger of your heart to be made like him. That if you are a part of that spiritual theocratic kingdom, that you can look forward to what? The eternal state of it. That just as he's reigning in your heart right now, one day when your body is transformed and, and your vow, the vow body will be taken off and you'll be made like into his image, according to the working whereby he's able to conform all things unto himself, that you will be able to go into that future heavenly kingdom where Christ will reign, God will reign, you will be his, he will be your God and you will be his, his people, his children. And there will be no what? Crying. There will be no struggling with sin. I can't imagine that. It's going to be phenomenal to have a thought life that I don't have to fight. The imminency of the kingdom. We talked about identification of the kingdom. Now we want to look at the nearness of it then. So what is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom is the kingdom of God, that which was physical, but even now we're talking about the theocratic kingdom. And Jesus says that that kingdom is what? It's at hand. Now, as the word is in gitzo, um, which means to come near or approach. Now, you have verses on your sheet of, of um, what it means to come near. But suffice it for here, Matthew 26 says, Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? This is in the, the garden. Behold, the hour is 
at hand. And the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then again, Luke 7, 12, the word is used as well. And it says, when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, and the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was near her, was, was with her. Now, what does it mean that the hour is at hand? What does it mean that my betrayer is at hand? What does it mean that Jesus was, came near the city? It's talking about approximation, isn't it? I what? I just came near Chris Connor. Do you get it? Okay. What does it mean? What does it mean for me to be near Chris Connor other than fear? Um, shadow. But I can touch it. It's there. I can see it. Do you, do you understand? I'm not looking from behind the piano. I'm not, you know, I'm not way over here. You know, this isn't being near to Chris. Does that make sense? The kingdom of God is near. Let me ask you this question. If the king is present here, what, is it, what does it necessarily represent? His kingdom. He is the final representative and the full representative of what? Of his kingdom. Who was standing in their midst making the proclamation? The king. What was in their midst? His kingdom. He was there. The king was there. The king was at hand. The king had come near. He was there. And the, the fullness of his kingdom was right there for them to embrace. But what do we know from John chapter 1? He came unto his own and his own what? Received him not. They rejected the kingdom. He was there. He was in their midst. And they missed it. Now what's kind of fun about this though is the, the Greek word there for so is in its perfect active form. Now I know for most of you that means nothing. But I'm going to tell you what it means. So it means something. Okay. Um, in the Greek, the perfect tense is, is the tense referring to a past action that has continuing results. You, everything that you, you believe is contingent upon a perfect word. It's the word tetelestai. When Jesus was on the cross, he didn't cry out three words, it is finished. He cried out, at least in the Greek, one word, tetelestai. It has been Paid for. That means there's never ever a payment that has to be made anymore. It's you with your mortgage making the final payment, crying out, Tetelestai, the house is mine. Well, the government's. But anyways, the house is mine. Okay? When Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, it has been paid for. It's done. It's finished. You don't have to do anything. All you got to do is go live in a house. That's pretty cool stuff. There's a million dollars in the bank account for you. Not literally a million dollars, but you get the idea. All you have to do is go to the bank and say what? I want it. But how many people sit there and don't know that they're really millionaires? And I'm not talking physical millionaires. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about for eternal life. It's sitting there. Jesus was a propitiation for the sins, not only of our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. All you have to do, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, all you have to do is call upon his name and you will be Saved. It's that easy. It really is. I'm not into easy believism, but all you have to do is, is earnestly admit that you're a sinner and that you can't save yourself and that you fully want to live for Jesus Christ and give him your life. And you know what? 
he'll take you up on it. I'm a living example of it. You don't even have to say the right words. All I said was, God, if you can say this wicked soul, I'm yours. And you know what? He understood my heart. I didn't need to say, I state my, my name, do solemnly swear that I'm a sinner, you know, and, and go through the whole process. He wants you. Now, his kingdom is at hand. What does it mean here? Well, it means that it had come, and now it's going to have what? Continuing results. The kingdom, see, many people miss this part. Because they think the kingdom was what? Rejected. Which kingdom was rejected? The Davidic physical kingdom. Get it? The kingdom had come. It was here. And it is here right now. It has never been gone. Even when Jesus died, it didn't go. When he was ascended, it didn't go. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, guess what? His kingdom is within you right now. He's reigning in your heart. But we're also told that that physical one, it's going to come at any moment. Even though he's reigning spiritually right now, that physical time of his return, it's going to come at any moment. Matthew 24. Note how many times he wants us to know that this is something that is going to come unawares. Matthew 24. Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my... And we just read about heaven and earth passing away, remember? In the new heavens and earth coming. Heavens and earth are going to pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour knows no one, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. Could you imagine living around Noah? Does anybody know how big that ark was? It was one and a half football fields long. 150 yards long. If you've ever been to a base, or baseball, that's good. We're talking football and baseball stadium. If you've ever been to a football stadium, it's bigger than the football stadium. It's 150 yards long, and it's 75 feet. I don't think it's 75 yards. I think it's 75 feet wide. 75 feet, though, right? It's 75 feet wide, 25 yards wide. It is four decks, three, and then plus you have the top. It's huge. It's a huge barge. When you go down and you, you look at these, these um, ocean liners, you know, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about something that's bigger than the city, you know? And, and so could you imagine this guy building this thing for potentially 120 years? And you see it. And you think the guy's a what? A nutcase. It's going to rain. It's going to what? It never rained before in the earth. It's going to what? It's going to rain. And so what do they do? They ignore his pleading that we know from elsewhere in scriptures that Noah pleaded, uh, preached to them. They ignored his preaching that judgment was coming. God would have allowed as many people as possible on that ark. But there was only eight that got on it. And we're told by Jesus, I take Jesus at his word, that until that day, they were what? They were partying. They totally rejected the message of judgment to come. You would think that they would begin to see that the ark was becoming more and more to what? Completion. And you'd think that when elephants are walking through the town and 
and horses are coming through and monkeys are coming through and all these different animals are walking through the town to Noah's house because he told Noah that they're going to come to you. You didn't have to go get them. And you think that alligators are walking through and behemoth is coming through and, and all these things are coming to, to Noah's house to get on the boat. You'd think that, wait, maybe I need to start thinking about something here. And they did what? They rejected it. They ignored it. They said, ah, the guy's a crackpot. He's living in a house with a bunch of animals. What a menagerie. And then all of a sudden, what? Chinese water torture begins. Water drop on forehead. And then again. And then again. And all of a sudden, it comes faster and faster and faster until there's the deluge. And the, the waters from beneath break open. And they're flooded. And they're killed. And it says, it'll be like that in, in, in the days of Christ's return. He says, so, will be, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would be coming, then he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Duh! Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. If I told you that I was going to come break in your house tonight, would you be ready? I remember when I was in a... Uh, in, in the military, in the RTC side, and we were at Fort Bragg, and we, we had our perimeters. We all dig our foxholes and stuff like that, and um, that was a wonderful moment. And, um, and, and we knew we had, we knew. Someone kind of let us know that the 82nd Airborne probably were going to attack that night. And, you know, we had our perimeter, so therefore we had to learn how to defend in our perimeters. And so 82nd Airborne was supposed to come be the aggressors that night. Well, if you know anything about the 82nd Airborne, they're one of the elite troops for, for the Army, right? And we'd already seen how they can make themselves look, look like bushes. And, and, you know, they let us see it in, 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 the, in the daylight, you know? And all of a sudden, you're just looking out there, and all of a sudden, the whole uh, field stands up. You know, they all have bushes tied to their back and everything, and you just thought it was a bunch of shrubs out there. And all of a sudden, you know... and didn't realize that the shrubs were moving slowly but surely, and all of a sudden, the whole field stands up in front of you, and you know, wow. So now you're 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 showing all that, right? And then you go out and dig your foxholes, and you have your perimeter, and you're kind of let know the kind of little <clears throat> slide, you know, 82nd Airborne might be coming tonight, you know. And so what are you going to do? You stay up all night, and that's exactly you start shooting bushes. <laughs> that's exactly right. Don't tell anybody, but I wiped out the squad next to me. Anyways, I was a good shot, man. Every time I saw the, the fire coming off of a gun, I, I pegged whoever shot. <clears throat> Anyways, it turned out that the perimeter, they kind of turned their perimeter instead of going straight, and I shot the, 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 my own squad. Anyways, it wasn't my squad. It was some other squad. But anyways, they had it coming to them. Um, needless to say, the 82nd Airborne never came that night. They just wanted us to stay up all night. Um, but... If you knew, if you knew, how would you treat it? You'd stay up all night. Do you really believe that Jesus is coming? I mean, do you honestly believe that Jesus is coming? Do you honestly believe that he's coming at a time that you don't have a clue when it's going to be? Then why do you do the things that you do at the times when you think nobody's watching? He could come at that moment. Wouldn't that be an awful thing? Right in the middle of a good and mad. Right in the middle of a good self-pity party. You know, all of a sudden Jesus comes. Oh, couldn't you came on Sunday morning when I was worshiping you in church? <laughs> that would have really been nice. He says it's going to come in the hour and it's going to come. I won't read the rest of it. It's just over and over and over again. What's it saying? You don't know when he's going to come. 
Well, the preeminency of repentance, this is the second part, this is the most important part, and we don't have a whole lot of time, so I promise I'll get, try to wrap this up within the next hour. Um, the, pre- the preeminency of repentance, okay? Repentance is, is paramount to everything else. It is the most crucial thing. It's the message that he had. He said, repent, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. So if you believe the kingdom of God is at hand, it's going to make you repent. Well, what does it mean to repent? Well, metanoia, metanoia is, the, is the, the, the noun side. Metanoia is the, um, the verb side. It means to change the way of thinking. Meta, the first part, it kind of looks like meta in English, doesn't it? Okay. That means change, to change. Metamorphosis, change the form of something. So change, na'o, is your mind, the way you think. Change the way you think. That's what the word repent means. And you know what? It is a consistent thing um, throughout all the teachings of people change, of, of people repenting. This call to repentance came, first of all, by the prophets. Now, I'm not going to take the time to read it. You have the sermon on your sermon note sheets, the verses that are there from Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, okay, where they called Israel to repent, repent, repent. You've been backsliding. You've turned to other gods, but God wants to save you. God wants to deliver you. So, therefore, repent. Change the way you think. And if you change the way you think, it's going to change the way you act. Do you believe, do you honestly believe that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge? Do you honestly believe in the fear of the Lord there is life? We don't like fear of the Lord. Fear of Yahweh. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, knowing the fear of God, I persuade men. Even if the love of God doesn't do it for me, I know the fear of God is there. And if I won't do it from the proper motivation, the, 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 the strong motivation is always there. The fear of God is always there. The fear of the Lord, the terror of the Lord, is the beginning of knowledge. It is what brings life. And the prophets declared, repent. John the Baptist, what did he declare when he was out there in, in the Jordan River? What did he declare? Not the kingdom of God. He said, repent. 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 Remember, he was preparing the way for Yahweh. He was preparing the, the road, right? And so his message was, repent. And what about Jesus? We know, right? Repent. 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 And what about the disciples? Well, we read in Luke 24, this is in general to all the disciples, and this is Jesus speaking to them. This is, the, remember I said the context from Acts 1 that we'd be looking a little bit more of the context. This is Luke again writing before that at the end of his first book. And then Jesus said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, in that repentance, the changing in the way you think, and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So in Acts 1.8, when Jesus says that they would be witnesses to him when, when the Holy Spirit came upon him, what was the message that he expected them to begin proclaiming? Repent. 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 Change the way you think. Well, what do we see happen with Peter? When the, the day of the, the um, Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, and Peter began to preach and proclaim the, Jesus Christ and how he came, and just at, at, toward the end of it, all the people are being pricked in their heart, and it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. Change the way you think, metanoia. Change the way you think, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the 
remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Note up there at Luke 24, what did Jesus tell them they needed to do? Preach repentance for what? The remission of sins. What did Peter preach? Repent so that you can have the remission of sins. If you want your sins remitted, the remission of sins, if you want your sins forgiven you, what is the precursor? Repentance. Changing the way you think. Now I know, and I'll stop for a moment, there is this battle over, in years past, probably a decade or so ago, or two, of this thing called Lordship Salvation. Okay? And that you need to, to accept Christ as your Lord in order to be saved. Okay? And there's this great debate over what you need to do. Okay? And this term repentance became a big point in this. Okay? Because many people understand the term repentance meaning change the way you act. Okay? It doesn't. It means change the way you think. In order for you, by faith, to come to Jesus Christ, what do you need to do? Change the way you think. A guy's walking down the street. He thinks, who's his savior? He is. I'm an American. I pull myself up on my own bootstraps. If somebody's going to do it for me, it's got to be who? It's got to be me. Right? That's the, way, that's the American mindset. This is it. It may be the government. I may look at the, governor, the government as my, as my Messiah. Okay? Whatever it is, it's not Jesus Christ. And most of them don't have a Paul on the road to Damascus experience. True? How many of you ever were, were knocked out off of a horse and have a, the, the big sun, sunbeam in your, in your face and having Jesus audibly saying to you, Be saved! You know, it didn't happen that way. Okay? You went on your way, and as you went on your way, somebody did what? They gave you the message of God. And as you received the message of God, you had to do what? Change the way you think. I remember sitting at a table with Woody Prophet, who was the pastor that led me to the Lord, and was my mentor, and Barry Quartz, who still was a missionary in Argentina, fighting though I was blue in the face about our evolution. I knew I was wrong. I knew I lost the battle, but I wasn't going to quit. And they kept saying, you either believe the Bible or you believe man. Which do you want to believe? You can believe God, you can believe man. Ah, oh, you, know, you can bring them together! How can you bring them together? If, if, if there was death before all this, then, then death isn't a result of sin. Yeah, well, somehow you can bring these together, you know? I mean, I mean you, know, you, just, you just fight this thing. But I knew I lost. And as I went away that day, that night, actually it was an evening, I had to do what? I had to repent of my thought life about what I believed about creation. I had to change the way I think. In order for you, by faith, to come to Jesus Christ, you have to change the way you think. It's not change the way you act. You don't have to give up smoking. You don't have to give up drinking. Those are destructive to your body, okay? But you don't have to give those up. You don't have to give up being a homosexual. Whoa, careful now, okay? Romans 1, I believe, says that homosexuality is the ultimate act of God's wrath. That we see homosexuality in the United States because God has taken his hands off the United States. The United States is not a blessed nation. It's a nation that's under the wrath of God. I firmly believe that. And Romans 1 is very clear in declaring it. However, though God hates homosexuality, he loves the homosexual. And you don't have to leave homosexuality in order to be saved. But I promise you this, that after you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, what's he going to do? He's going to start cleaning you. And there was a man a couple years ago that got saved that... That, man, he was, he was fruit, he was falling off the tree. I mean, it was right there, it was all mine. 
and it wouldn't come. It wouldn't come. It wouldn't come. It was like tentacles were going outside the fruit to cling onto the branch so that he wouldn't fall off the, off the tree. Do you know why? And he'll tell you this himself. And I confronted him with it later. Because he knew the minute he got saved, the change that God was going to begin to do in his life, and he liked his sin, and he wanted it. Now, what about you? Where are you at in the, in the concept of repentance? Changing the way you think. Well, we read in Acts 17, Paul. Paul as well. People say, well, Paul, was the, he was the guy of grace. He clearly didn't preach repentance. Really? Paul says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked and now commands all men everywhere to what? Repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this by, to all by raising him from the dead. Does anybody know who he's talking to in Acts 17? The Greeks were in Athens. In Athens. This is that rational witnessing you know, concept. You know, we have presuppositional and, and we have rational kind of uh, apologetics. Well, this is the point where people look at it and they say, well, he was doing rational and da-da-da-da. Really, he still comes back to the, the theme of God, and that is what? Repent. Change the way you think. Even to those who knew not God at all, he says, you need to change the way you think, and you need to accept the one who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. The proclamation of Jesus as well as the disciples was to repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is reigning even right now. What does it mean to you? Does it mean anything? If it, if it doesn't mean anything to you, you're not his. If you are his, there will be some concept in your, in your inner being that Jesus is reigning on the throne of your life, or ought to be. When I stumble and I sin, and yes, it does happen, and I'm sorry if it offends you that your pastor will say, tell you that he sins, but I'd be a liar if I ever told you I don't sin, okay? But I, one thing that's a great confirmation for me is that the Holy Spirit kicks my butt. I'm sorry, I shouldn't talk like that. That's Pittsburgh, he's coming out. He spanks me and lets me know that what I've done is what? Not necessarily right. Uh, it's sin, and I need to what? Confess it. I need to change the way I think and confess it before God. And Jesus said, when he's talking to Peter, and Peter says, how many times should we forgive somebody? Seven times? And he says, as often as they come and they what? Repent. If they tell you that they repent, you do what? You forgive them. Even unto 70 times, seven times. In other words, in a day. 490 times a day. If they sin against you and they come and say, oh man, I'm sorry, I repent. What I did was wrong. Will you forgive me? You should say what? Yes, I forgive you. You may... But you've got to suck it up. Because guess what? You will be the image of God at that moment. Do you know how many times God has got to come and suck it up for you? If you know Christ is your Savior, the kingdom of God is in your heart. Romans 12, 1 and 2 gives us the process of repentance. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of worship, and that you can be not conformed to this world, but rather be transformed in the renewing of your mind, that you may be able to prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, right? So in that, there are three places. First of all, you need to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. You need to, to put all that you are on the altar so God can alter all that you are. If you haven't put everything you are on that altar, you haven't done it. You're not a living sacrifice. You can't put your hand on and the rest of you could be off. 
Isn't that kind of a wimpy sacrifice? I mean, when, can you imagine the Jews? They cut the hoof off and they put it on the, uh, they put it on the, on the altar. God would accept that sacrifice, wouldn't he? No, he wouldn't accept that sacrifice. What part of Isaac needed to be on the altar? All of Isaac needed to be on the altar. You need to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Secondly, you need to take your eyes off the world. You need to take your eyes off the world. We want to look like the world. We want to act like the world. We want to drink things that the world drinks. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to be mundane and become judgmental and legalistic. What I'm saying is, if Jesus Christ is in your focus, and you don't do what you do because of Jesus Christ in you, but because what you see in the world, and because what you see in Hollywood, and what you see in the magazines, what you see in this, is trash. It's of the world. You know, there was an illustration I'll never forget. I heard it on James Dobson's uh, Focus on the Family thing. And he was talking to the, the guy who was the assistant chief of police of Los Angeles during the days of the Rodney King riots. Now, some of you were probably babies, and some of you weren't even born then, okay? And so you don't even know what they are. But Los Angeles was just in great tumult at that time. And this guy was the assistant chief of police during the time. And he was, and he was a, he's a believer. And he was talking to James Dobson. He says, my son came home the other day and said to me, he says, I got, I've got the whole problem figured out, you know, with the church and the world all figured out. He says, really good, son. Thousands of years we've been debating this thing, trying to struggle with this thing. Tell me what it is. He says, see, it's, it's like this, Dad. He says, you know, the, the church, people in the church, they're, they're, they're seeking to maintain this separation from the world. You know, he says, you know, and so they're, they're, they're doing this thing, this separation thing. He says, that's a good thing. He says, but the problem is that the world is what? The world's going downhill. And so if all we're seeking to do is maintain a separation from the world, that, all that means is that what? We're going downhill a little slower. But what's my focus should be? It should be God. And God's standard of righteousness and holiness, what? Never changes. And so as the world becomes more decadent and dark, what should it mean for, for believers? More and more. You should be looking a lot less and less like the world, acting less and less like the world. Your light should be shining brighter and brighter. And the sad thing is, it's not. You know what the problem with the church is? It needs to get back to the teachings of Jesus and, and not to the teachings of men. We read all these books about what, what guys think. Self-motivation and all this other kind of stuff. And bringing the business affairs into the world. And what we talk about in Sunday school, Starbucks and all these other... Um, Promo things into the world and, and music of the world. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not going into each one of those and I'm not defining what I mean by that. Okay? Change the way you think. Is the first thing you think about is, is this pleasing to God? Is this glorifying to God? Is this advancing his kingdom? Or is this all about me? Finally, take your mind, let your mind be renewed. Your mind can't be renewed. It can't be made new again. That's what that means. It can't be made new again if you're not putting into it God's word. And, and First Peter chapter, um, chapter 3, 2, sorry, 2, says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if so be that you have tasted of the grace of God, or the graciousness of God. Put that backwards. If you've tasted of the grace of God, then you as a newborn baby are going to desire the word of God that you can grow. If you have no desire for God's word, then you are not born again. That's just a fact. God's word says so. It declares it. If you have no desire for God and his word, you're not his. I'm starting to wonder about Kaylee Rain. She's really mine. Every, every, I mean, every, she keeps coming up to hug me. <laughs> Anyways, it's awesome. Anyways, 
Usually that doesn't happen. Think about it. Your kids run up and hug who? You. Okay. Normally, you know, unless you have great familiarity, you know, that's kind of fun. But generally, you have that relationship. Your kids know you. Not a stranger. Finally, the kingdom is at hand. Christ has called his disciples to be ambassadors of the kingdom, proclaiming his kingdom message. What's the kingdom message? What's the kingdom message? Repent. It's simple. It's one word. You don't have to memorize a whole outline. It's just one word. Repent. Repent. Change the way you think. How faithful are you, first of all, to heeding his message, and second of all, to proclaiming the message? Now, I know there's a little bit more that goes into that, but you don't have to be a scholar. Jesus told the disciples to preach what? Repentance for the remission of sins. That's all you had to do. And so all they told the Jews that day was what? Jesus was here. He was on the earth. You killed him. He rose from the dead. And they said what? What are we going to do to be saved? Listen, if God is working in somebody's life, if the Holy Spirit's working, it's his job to get in the increase, not mine. My job is just to do what? To speak the word. To speak the message. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to honor and magnify you in all that we do. Lord, I know that you desire for sinners to come. Uh, that you rejoice, Lord, when, when one repents. That the angels rejoice. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to declare your message. But even more so, Lord, that we would respond to your message as well. That we would repent. We would change the way we think, Lord. Knowing that when we change the way we think, it will change the way we act. Oh, God, I pray that you would remove from us the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life that we would be fully focused on you. And yet I know that you've said in your word that we're going to struggle with these things as we walk through the earth. Lord, I pray that we'd be faithful, though, in the midst of these troublesome situations, to be um, mindful of you and of Jesus, and that we would, we would stand firm against them, or we would flee from, from their presence. In Jesus' name, amen.